we pick sides. We pick the sides of people who are struggling for justice. And there are Palestinians and Israelis who are struggling for justice. Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. I'm your host, Shanna Crumley, and this is The Future Is, a mini-series all about Columbia alumni who are the leaders of today and creators of tomorrow. When 17-year-old Julia Basha arrived at Columbia University in 1997, she had no idea that she would become a filmmaker, much less one in the Middle East. And yet, that's what Julia does best. She follows her instincts. That journalistic instinct is what led Julia on her journey from studying Middle Eastern history at Columbia to advocating for justice as an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Julia Basha has served 12 years as the creative director at Just Vision, a nonprofit that documents the work of Israelis and Palestinians using nonviolent resistance to the occupation to bring freedom, dignity, and equality to both societies. As part of her advocacy, she's also given two TED Talks about women and nonviolence in conflict and shown her work at Sundance, Berlin, and Tribeca Film Festivals. Julia graciously took a few minutes out of her unconventional filmmaker schedule to talk with me about her upcoming project about the women behind an uprising in the late 80s and how she sees nonviolence of women at the heart of other conflicts, including here in the U.S. This episode contains sensitive topics, so please be mindful of who's listening. I asked Julia how she handles the highly polarized politics of Israel and Palestine. Um, I think this idea of separating the two sides as there's an Israeli side and there's a Palestinian side um, is not actually seeing what the struggle is about. I mean, the struggle is about uh, people in both societies who believe that uh, the future is a future where both communities are there to stay and that they need to thrive. And the other side, which is uh, a sort of um, uh, a vision of the future, which is highly destructive, which is based on continued um, uh, denial of the right of another population to share um, and there are tremendous Palestinians and Israelis who have been um, struggling at the local level and at the national level uh, for years now, and we've been now, you know, documenting this field of, you know, nonviolent resistance for 12 years. Um, and uh, I can tell you that the the communities that are engaged in in this struggle have become a lot more uh, savvy, a lot less romantic about their work. So even though the political sphere is um, not something to be very optimistic about, the civil society level um, is something to be optimistic about. We are currently in our fourth documentary project, which um, is going to be a look back at the role that women played in the first intifada, which was an uprising in the late 80s. Um, that is largely um, remembered, when remembered at all, um, as um, an uprising of stones where young men, um, Palestinian men, would go into the street and throw stones at, a at a Israeli jeeps. And it is true that that marked um, a lot of the uprising, but what uh, people generally don't know is that there was a lot more happening during that time and that the first intifada marked... Um, a moment in Palestinian society where um, the communities across Gaza and the West Bank started withdrawing consent from the Israeli occupation in all aspects of it and using civil disobedience tactics like sit-ins and strikes and boycotts 
and uh, resigning from institutions run by the occupying powers in a very concerted effort to make it impossible for Israel to continue governing uh, militarily the Palestinian population. And so we're going back, telling that story, and revealing that um, during a significant period of that uprising, uh, Palestinian women were the ones calling the shots um, behind the scenes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Were they making the decisions or they yeah. were? So um, very shortly after the beginning of the uprising, a few months after it began, um, the Israeli government um, did a very strong crackdown of all of the leaders. Um, there was an underground um, organization which they called, the Palestinians called the Unified National Leadership, which was um, at the time initially a group of men um, who represented the different Palestinian political parties at the time and who together would make decisions around what actions uh, the population should take um, to continue their struggle of resisting the occupation. And they would um, issue bulletins, uh, which were basically um, you know, written instructions in a piece of paper that would be widely distributed across all refugee camps and villages and cities in the West Bank and Gaza, and that the population treated, as one of our um, film characters says, as the Constitution. Uh, people would respect it deeply. Uh, when these male leaders were arrested in this massive crackdown that, that Israel enacted early on in the uprising, um, it wasn't clear what was going to happen. And uh, there was a very big chance that the uprising was going to die at that point. Um, but instead of it just going away, um, women took over the leadership role. So they took over positions not only in the National Unified Leadership, the clandestine uh, organizing uh, group, but also on every aspect of organizing. So um, things like the mobile clinics that they set up in order to provide health care to Palestinians across villages um, so that Palestinians didn't have to go to the um, Israeli militarily run hospitals because every aspect of Palestinian life was run by, by the Israeli military. So you had hospitals in which if you checked in as an injured Palestinian, the first thing that they would try to investigate is where did you get injured? Were you in a demonstration? And then they would arrest you at the hospital. So in order to prevent this from happening, they set up this alternative uh, mobile clinics uh, so that people could take care uh, of their health care without um, fear of being arrested. Women were running that. Uh, they had to also set up alternative education classrooms because similarly, the universities, the elementary schools, down to kindergarten and nurseries uh, were... Um, uh, administer, administered by the Israeli authorities and they could close down these um, institutions whenever they wanted, in which they did. Over the course of the Intifada, um, they were closed by almost the entire four years where students couldn't go to school. And education is a really important thing for Palestinian communities. So the women set up these clandestine classrooms in people's homes where the math teacher would uh, get six students in her house and continue teaching so that uh, the students could keep up. Um, and women were running uh, this operation, which was very complex because it was a, a process of trying to you know, pair teachers with the students. And um, it was a very dangerous activity because the Israel enacted a law that if you were caught with uh, more than three kids in your class with books, you could be arrested for 10 years. You could get a prison sentence for 10 years just for teaching kids in your Children. home. 
Yeah. So are, those some, like, are you talking about that in your campaign? Yeah, so the film talks a lot about all these efforts uh, that they set up um, and also the, the price that they paid. Um, it's, it, you know, this wasn't a, a, an easy task for women to take. Uh, women in conflict situations, when they uh, start becoming part of struggles, they are targeted and punished in gender-specific ways. Um, so there was, um, you know, significant torture and sexual assault. Uh, one of our main um, characters, they are real people, but we call them characters since they are in our films. Um, she was um, detained twice uh, because of her activism. And the first time she suffered a miscarriage because of torture. And the second time um, she had a six-month-old baby who was still nursing and she was separated from him, and the child got very ill. And eventually she was able to get the child to come into prison with her uh, so she could continue taking care and nursing him. Um, but this child, six months old, stayed in prison with her for six months. Traumatizing physically. Very, very traumatizing. And we have interviews with, with the son as well, talking about um, what it meant for him um, to have a, a mom who was so active in the struggle for um, liberation of Palestinians. Wow. You, you mentioned women in conflict um, in both of your TED Talks, and especially the one that's specifically on women waging uh, nonviolent conflict. How do you, how do you see that um, being a transferable, not skill, but like a thing? Like how do, you, how do you see that being possible for other conflicts that are ongoing? Yeah, I mean, I think women are part of social movements um, the vast majority of the time. They just tend to be invisible when we tell the stories of those movements. And with our film, we are um, following on the footsteps, I think, of, of a growing uh, storytelling trend now uh, where we want to put uh, women back into the history books of social movements. There is a really great documentary that opened at Sundance this year called Dolores, which uh, talks about um, the women who, together with Cesar Chavez, uh, was uh, the founder of the organizing of the farmers uh, in the United States. And she's literally absent from history books. And, uh, and the film shows very clearly how she was an equal partner in, in all those efforts. And I think that is often the case. And um, it's, um, it's particularly um, true in um, settings and situations where... Um, the international media has a tendency to overly emphasize documentation of violence because women are uh, generally more likely to adopt uh, nonviolent resistance methods in conflict situations. And so they uh, tend to look really underrepresented. Um, and this is a huge disservice to um, you know, the, the whole of the humanity and our ability as a community to build democratic and peaceful societies. Because if we don't learn the lessons of, of women organizing, if we don't have those role models to pass on to younger women, then we are really missing the opportunity to be engaging in struggles that are more effective in building the societies that we want. What do you see, who do you see, I guess, as role models for, for today's girls that we should be looking at 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think certainly, you know, I mentioned one. I think Dolores is is a it's a beautiful role model of of um, resilience and of persistence and of strategic thinking in movement building. Um, I think some of the women that we are documenting, uh, Nyla um, Ayesh and Zahira Kamal, who is one of our um, characters and who is currently the only female head of a major political party in the Middle East. Uh, she's the head of FIDA. Um, and does tremendous work on on women's rights in the Middle East. Uh, if you look um, into the Liberian uh, movement, there's a beautiful film called Pretty Devil Back to Hell that tells the story of the Liberian women and how they played a key role in ending the civil war. And Lema, who is you know has won a Nobel Peace Prize because of her work since um, the film, you know, helped get her story out. Um, is also a, a huge role model, and and I think in almost every country you could find incredible women um, who helped uh, bring societies out of the brink of destruction. That's actually a question, like a section of questions that I that I've been putting into these interviews at some point. I might as well do it now, but kind of talking about that role of mentorship in your own life as well. Like I mentioned that we don't have a whole lot of role models or I don't feel, I never feel like I have enough role models Um, and across the board in different kinds of professions, different backstories, different situations. But what's been the role for you personally of, of mentoring? Have you had really, you know, strong mentors or no mentors and who have they been? How have you worked that out? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I had mentors in the traditional sense of the word as someone who is ahead of you significantly in your profession and who kind of serves as a as a sounding board, you know, as you go through challenges. Um, no, I, I have not had that. I have um, a lot of colleagues that I think have been my mentors. Uh, so they are people more of my generation who I have built uh, um, my career together with. You know, I'm a documentary filmmaker, which is an inherently very um, collaborative uh, field, and particularly the kind of films that I make, I make with other people, and there's no way those films would be made without my colleagues. They are mostly women, um, and um, per- since I have stayed in the same issue area for so long, I have built very strong connections and relationships, and and so I learn through them a lot, and um, and we help each other, and as we are going through similar issues in life like having children and you know figuring out how to um, make sure that um, you can continue doing your work while uh, feeling like you are uh, spending all the time that you want with with your family Uh, and you know the, the sort of a lot of what you could call like the typical questions as well as the more less typical questions which are particular to my field, which is how to deal with being interrogated for seven hours and strip searched at the border. And, you know, the, the lack of how do you keep your morale up? Like, how do you keep your energy? And how do you not give up um, in an issue that is so longstanding like this one? And so I think my colleagues have, have very much played that role. Uh, I also think professionally, I had a very strong role model in the sense of, uh, of, uh, of showing me what's possible in my mother. Uh, so she wasn't a role model in the sense that of, of like someone that I consult with, right? But uh, she was a role model in, a, in an unconscious way, uh, in the way that I have always felt that I could do professionally whatever I wanted. So I never felt 
that because I was a woman, there were things I couldn't do, if you know what I mean. Uh, so that was ingrained in me by seeing, um, by having such a strong um, women in my life doing all the things that she did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very strong supporter. Oh, and she always, and, and yes, and absolutely. I mean, you know, my mom, um, you know, has supported my professional and career decisions through and through and always been 100% behind me. And how are you taking on that role with your own daughters? What is it, how do you think about it now in that second? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the other side to that is that what I, you know, what I think my mother did not provide me as a role model necessarily is um, a, a, a model that for me personally works in the, com- in the sort of combining family and work. Um, and I think that's partly generational. I think her generation, um, in order to break through the barriers um, that existed for women at the time professionally, they had to uh, show that they were available 24-7. And, and there was a sense of the, the child care, uh, even maybe unconsciously, uh, and I think for my mother, it would certainly be an unconscious thing. She wouldn't, I think, f- say that, that she felt that way. But the child care was seen as an impediment to her ability to succeed professionally. And because of the work that she did and a lot of the women of her generation did, I don't see child care that way. I see child care as something that is critical for my own fulfillment of happiness and and, and feeling like I am building beautiful relationships with my children. So I want to spend time with them as much as I want to spend time at work. And I don't feel anymore that there is the sort of... Um, uh, the dichotomy almost. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't, I don't want to have to choose one or the other. And even though it, it, for most women today, they don't have at all the privilege of even considering these questions because they have to work sometimes two jobs three jobs in order to just support their family, you know, single mothers who have, um, uh, it would be a luxury to be considering work-life balance. Um, I have had the luxury to be able to um, think through carefully, like, and make decisions professionally um, about um, wanting very much to prioritize time with the family. Um, and I think that's one of the um, aspects of, of, you know, a, a small sliver of the female population that has, that is the sort of like, you know, the, the, uh, the irony, I think, in some ways of, of the successes of, of female leadership, right? We, 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 we really succeeded in being like, okay, women can participate in the workforce fully, um, from the majority of the women, they have to, regardless, because they have to work to support their families. But um, men has hasn't the, the same dynamic of putting men into the, the the sort of domestic life. The flip side didn't work, right? Didn't hasn't happened yet. And so I think that's the sort of like next <laughs> frontier um, uh, in this particular conversation. Uh, is is can we? Um, be truly partners and then of course can society build the situation of of supporting families with paternity leave and maternity leave and um and raising you know 
women out of poverty so that they can even like have these conversations. I'm so curious because you have, I mean, clearly you have a very comprehensive understanding of, of these kinds of issues. What made you choose film versus any of the other, like there's so many ways you could get at the same issues, but what brought you to film specifically? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't uh, a conscious decision that I made. It was something that happened in my life and I embraced. Uh, I uh, originally, so I grew up in Brazil um, and I thought, uh, once I guess I started thinking through professions, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a, a criminal lawyer to help deal with the um, huge problem of massive incarcerations that we have in Brazil and overflowing prisons. And so that was like my thing growing up. And I was enrolled, I enrolled in law school, uh, which is an undergraduate uh, level degree in Brazil. Uh, but because I entered into school in Brazil a year ahead of time, I decided to take that year and come to New York to study English for one year. And then I was going to go back. I didn't speak you know, English at the time. And um, I started taking English as a second language classes at Columbia University. This was 2003. No, 2003 was when I graduated. This was, I arrived and started taking English as a second language classes in 1998 at Columbia. And um, while I was taking the classes, I started auditing uh, classes in history and political science and really fell in love with the notion of a liberal arts education, which is not something that we have available in Brazil. And um, I decided that I wanted to stay to be able to do that for four years and study like all of the different aspects of the human experience and being us in this world that I didn't um, do, you know, as in like the high school level in Brazil. And so I applied and um, got accepted to the general studies school. And while I was in school, uh, I then thought I was going to go into a more an academic uh, uh, path, focused on the Middle East, which became my uh, area of interest after September 11. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I was in New York when September 11 happened. Um, it was obviously an extremely traumatic um, moment uh, for New Yorkers. I had friends who lived very close to the World Trade Center and um, had people um, come and stay in my house who couldn't enter into their homes for months. And that led to um, many questions that I needed answers for. And so I started um, becoming very involved, not only at school and classes that related to the Middle East, but also getting more politically engaged. I was very active in the war against Iraq. And that kind of set me on a, on a tr trend to, I think, work in academia, um, which my first step after graduation was going to go, um, was going to be to go uh, do a master's degree at the Dehoda Institute at Tehran University because I focus on Iranian um, history and politics. But 2003, which is the year I graduated, the United States invaded Iraq. And um, the Iranian government stopped issuing visas for students coming from the United States. And um, they told me, though, because I was Brazilian, I was not an American citizen at the time, that if I came to a country in the Arab world, they would issue my visa. So I started scrambling to find a way to go to a country in the Arab world. And my one relationship with film while at Colombia 
was that I used to um, uh, volunteer as an actress for the film students who were doing their masters. And one of the students that I had acted in his films um, was doing an internship with an Egyptian filmmaker. So he introduced me to her. Yes. And she said, come to uh, Cairo. I'll buy your plane ticket. You stay in my house and you help me with this film that I'm making. And um, once your visa to Iran you know, is issued, you're free to go. So that was the idea. Uh, played out very differently in reality because I arrived there. I looked at the footage she had uh, filmed in Doha, Qatar, uh, where she had gotten exclusive access into Al Jazeera, the Arabic satellite channel, and the U.S. Central Command, which were both located in Doha, 10 miles apart from each other, but were giving off completely different news and interpretations of what was happening during the war in Iraq. And I was hooked couldn't believe how lucky I was to be seeing that material and started working with her and eventually became the writer and editor of uh, the film, which um, turned into Control Room, uh, which was a film that came out in 2004 um, and did very well in helping um, push the conversation around the Iraq war forward in the United States. Wow. So not just film but investigative journalism really yes yeah I mean it was I mean I I think you know all the films that um, that I have worked on are um, about changing the narrative about issues that um, have become kind of um, you know almost dogma in some ways in the way that the news media covers them and uh, you know I'm trying very much to give um, a different perspective so that we can um, start looking at, 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 at these conflicts with a different eye and, and therefore be more effective at tackling them. Yeah. And how did you get over the border to suddenly focus on Israel and Palestine for so many years? Yeah, yeah right. So um, after Control Room came out, uh, I was contacted by an Israeli-Canadian uh, human rights advocate called Ronit Avni, and she had seen Control Room and invited me to come to Jerusalem to work on a film that she was making about Palestinians and Israelis who had lost loved ones to the conflict and who were reaching out to each other. And uh, I went, and um, somewhat reluctantly, I'll say, at first, because I thought that Israel and Palestine was an area that had plenty of media attention, and I was more interested in, in sort of like the stories that are not being told, But when I arrived there, I realized that, yes, it was a lot of media attention, but it was the wrong kind of media attention and that there was this really important uh, untold story of um, the civilians on both sides that were uh, doing incredibly courageous work to um, build societies that um, can be uh, sustainable and peaceful in the long term. And so I started working uh, with um, uh, Ronit and... uh, over you know the uh, following years, um, uh, Just Vision started blossoming into a fully fledged nonprofit organization, and uh, uh, we are now a team um, of uh, twelve people, and we have an office in East Jerusalem in Sheikh Jarrah, as well as in New York and Washington D.C. Can you tell me a little bit, just like a, to give a since this is a, especially since this is an audio podcast, like can you give me 
a description, I guess, of what, what you're, I mean, I know that there's no typical day, but what is the process that you go through as you're, you know, planning for this kind of film, and then when you get into country, strip searched on, at the border, mm-hmm. what, what's the process? Sure. <laughs> um, so we have a we have a team on the ground, which is really the core of of how we make our films. Uh, and each film has been different because uh, with the first film, we didn't yet have a sort of established core producing um, cohort like we have now. Um, but so it's hard to give you a sort of typical film because each film is very different. But I'll share. I'll I'll try to give a little bit of a of a taste um, of what working there has has been I uh, typically when I'm in production I try to spend a lot of time in the region working with um, my Palestinian producer uh, who's called Rula Salame she is uh, Palestinian from Jerusalem Uh, she lives there full-time and uh, is also a journalist Uh, she has a a tv show um, on Palestinian television uh, which is really brilliant and getting in to um, Israel is typically one of the hardest parts of um, making the film. Uh, the Ben Gurion Airport, which is the airport in Tel Aviv that I, I have to um, go through, uh, has um, a policy of um, trying to identify and harass uh, individuals that might be coming in to do uh, investigative journalism or uh, in any way cover aspects of the occupation, which Israel doesn't have an interest in um, having the world know about. And typically, if you are um, of Palestinian descent, you get a much rougher treatment. Um, I have a Lebanese last name, Basha. Um, I have a a Lebanese... uh, uh, great grandfather, um, but I did not grow up with any Lebanese identity. In fact, the fact that I have a Lebanese last name never crossed my mind until I start to cross the Ben Gurion Airport, and then it became really important. And then, and um, uh, plus, obviously, we you know the fact that the work that I'm doing is is uh, uh, sort of seen as work that. Um, uh, they do not want made. So what that means, and, and just, you know, important caveat is that what I go through is very small compared to what Palestinians have to go through on a daily basis. But um, personally, it's still hard. Um, and uh, it uh, it can mean and has meant uh, hours and hours, up to seven hours of, of being interrogated by multiple people, asking you the same questions over and over again. This is a, a tactic that is meant to psychologically start breaking you. And um, they um, there are threats made that you're not going to be allowed in and you're going to be deported, you know, back to, to where you came from. Um, or uh, if you're trying to get out of the country, um, meaning when you're coming out, uh, it's also similarly done like that, that you're not going to be allowed to get into your plane with that, with your things, that you're going to take your computer, and they often take your computer. Um, and uh, and it, a lot of questions around what you're doing and where have you been and who are your friends and when to take your phone and look through your Facebook page and through your email and uh, just interrogate um, 
everything about what you've been doing there. Um, it involves being strip searched regularly. I think every time I entered through Bengaluru Airport, I was strip searched. Um, and um, all your things are taken away from you, of course. And um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's done. It's a process that is done with the intention of uh, having you not want to come back. And that is what they want through the process. What do you say when they're asking you questions? Do you tell, I mean, do you stick to... Yeah, I mean, I generally answer the basic, um, um, you know, the basic things that they're asking. And uh, I am not going to give them intelligence about anybody. You know, they want to use it as an attempt to know about Palestinians and what are Palestinians doing. And the it's, it's none of their business. They don't have enough, even warrants, you know. Like, sometimes they want to, like, um, they often will ask you, turn on your computer and they don't even have a police warrant to like ask you to turn your computer, and that's usually what I say. I say, "Where is your police warrant to turn my computer? Why are you, you know what is why are you investigating me?" Um, and uh, and the 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 sad part about this is that there is um, there's no recourse, and uh, you are really left on your own. Um, you know, people often say. Oh, but now, because I start when I started doing this work, I was a Brazilian citizen and I didn't have an American citizenship. A few years later, I guess quite a few years later, I became an American citizen, and and I also had a Brazilian citizenship. But I would enter Israel with my American citizenship in the hope that that would provide a little bit more protection. Um, but unfortunately, even uh, when I went in. Not only with my American passport, but with a letter from the American embassy in Tel Aviv saying that I was there as their guest. Uh, I got the same treatment. And when I called the, uh, the sort of consulate to, to try to get help, they told me, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. And so literally, you know, there is nothing that uh, the American government can do to protect its citizens from going through this completely unwarranted uh, harassment at the border. Well, let's go back to that, though. So, like, getting in and out of the country is difficult enough with an American passport or the Brazilian citizenship, and you said it's much more difficult for the Palestinians. What's life like on the inside for for the, the people who are in your film from both sides? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the key aspect of, of Israel and Palestine that many people um, often don't understand is that this, these are not two countries that are at war with each other, right? This is one country that has militarily occupied a population um, for now half a century. Um, In fact, uh, very soon, we will be celebrating 50 years of the occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. And so the reality for Israelis is very different than the reality for Palestinians. Um, Israelis can, by and large, live a life that is um, normal uh, by many standards, except for uh, the years in which they have obligatory service in the military. Uh, Other than that, uh, Israel is a society that has succeeded in, um, you know, being at uh, the top levels of, you know, high-tech development. Uh, They have a tourism industry where people go and there are beautiful beaches in the Mediterranean um, there is culture, there's music, people, you know, go to the theaters and people go to see shows and people have friendships and marriages and um, live a normal life, um, by and large. And um, 
Palestinians, on the other hand, are a population that is uh, living with the consequences and the reality of having no control over your own life. And what that means is that um, in order uh, to go from the city that you live or the village or the refugee camp that you live into um, where a friend or an acquaintance might live, you have to go through areas of the West Bank. Now I'm going to separate because the West Bank is very different than Gaza, uh, where are um, not even considered uh, legally to be Palestinian areas. So um, you are going to encounter checkpoints uh, where um, the decision of whether you pass through or not are arbitrarily made by a young uh, 18, 19-year-old, um, you know, Israelis and Israeli women and men who uh, are... Um, generally not happy to be there, but who uh, feel like they are following the orders of their government and who can uh, act a lot based on fear and uh, very aggressively uh, against the Palestinian population. Um, and, you know, checkpoints are notorious uh, for um, being a place of great humiliation and a lot of human rights violations uh, against uh, the freedom of movement of a population to have access to their schools and to their hospitals and to their friends and to the outside world. I mean, you can't, as a Palestinian, your borders are completely sealed by Israel, and that applies to Gaza as well. In order for a Palestinian from Gaza to go, let's say, recently I was actually just uh, before you arrived reading an email from a colleague at a foundation who had organized a, a conference for lawyers, Palestinian lawyers from Gaza, who were going to go to South Africa uh, for a one-week training, and uh, Israel did not allow them to fly out to attend a conference in South Africa. Uh, students uh, in Gaza uh, that have been accepted to top universities in the United States uh, who cannot get out of Gaza to attend the schools they've been accepted with full scholarship because the Israeli government has decided so. Um, of course, this is uh, in some ways the... Um, uh, the least worst aspect of life in Gaza, because what also happened in Gaza, which is basically an open air prison, is that um, temporarily, uh, you know, often during the summers, uh, a war starts. And by war, basically what I mean is a bombardment of a territory where a population is, you know, completely... Um, uh, imprisoned in, they have nowhere to run and trapped. And uh, the Israeli military, which was, which was one of the strongest armies in the world, um, uh, flies over this open air prison and uh, starts sending bombs into this population and kills thousands of people and children uh, and causes enormous amount of destruction of the infrastructure and, you know, Palestinians today in Gaza live with minimal electricity and they have to racial everything. And, you know, Israel decides how much cement comes in to rebuild Gaza afterwards and how much food and how much medicine. And um, so, you know, there is no comparison in terms of like what life looks like for an Israeli and what life looks like for a Palestinian. Um, it's, it's a very, very different experience. Um, and yet uh, there is also, uh, I think, a, a tremendous amount of um, resilience in the, far, in the part of Palestinians and vision 
um, on the part of some parts of uh, Israeli society in understanding that the future of, of Israeli society depends on the future of Palestinians and that they are connected to each other and that you can't um, imagine that um, you are truly going to be able to be free until uh, the people who you're occupying also get their freedom. Is that what you see as, as what needs to happen or what the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the ultimate uh, obvious goal is for um, uh, a, a solution in which both communities can thrive and and a democratic future for for both of them. Uh, there is a lot of people on the ground who also believe in that and who are actively working for it. And those individuals tend to be invisible to the international community, and our work is to highlight them. What do you see as um, the key, I guess? Because if you if you study conflict, in their, I mean, each one has their unique situations and backgrounds and factors, but there have been conflicts in which there's been reconciliation and sort of that forgiveness process after the fact. What do you see through your work as as the necessary elements for that kind of a reconciliation of, I mean, there's like, you know, post-genocide forgiveness communities coming back together, but then there's other conflicts that are going on that don't clearly have anything <laughs> in the future in the way of reconciliation. What do you see for Israel and Palestine? I, I think reconciliation um, is, is going to be an important part of, of this, but it, reconciliation can't happen until you have a situation of equality between the two parties. You can't have reconciliation between Palestinians and Israelis while Palestinians are living under occupation, right? So I think the first step is... Um, for uh, Palestinians to gain freedom and to be, uh, you know, fully um, citizens of either their own country or equal citizens in the country of Israel, meaning whether it's a one state or a two state, I'm agnostic about that so long as both communities have agreed to it and where there's equality. Um, and once you have that stage, then I think reconciliation will be a very important part of, of getting people to be ready to build a future together. Mm-hmm. And then what kind of lessons, this is the last question, I'll wrap up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of lessons do you think we can draw from this? Because we, I mean, this country is in a different, totally different mm-hmm. kind of conflict, but it's a cultural right. confrontation, right? Mm-hmm. What do you see, whether it's women and nonviolence, or if it's just like, what do you see for us in terms of? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a beautiful um, coincidence in the fact that this our film talking about the lessons of women in the First Intifada is coming out at a time of so much organizing in the United States and organizing led by women. And um, it's uh, it's exciting to see that. Uh, I think that the, the feminist movement in the United States um, is going through uh, a beautiful period where... Um, it's going beyond, you know, the idea of uh, of feminism just being about, uh, you know, breaking the glass ceiling and and really understanding feminism as uh, something for all women and for the rights and dignity of women across the board, which places it in in the best position to lead the movement that we need in in the United States right now because it's a movement that that includes uh, immigrants and includes. Muslims and uh, includes uh, economic uh, inequality questions, which I think all play into uh, some of the divisiveness that we see 
in the United States today. And uh, I, I think that the, the parallels are um, hard to make in terms of like actual, um, you know, the, the specific dynamics of it. But I think that the, the, the movement that you see at the political level in Israel going towards more and more right-wing policies and policies that are um, uh, segregating of, of particular uh, populations uh, is similar to a sort of dynamic of the political leadership that we're seeing in the United States, in our country. And um, the lessons that we could take in the United States um, um, of um, from... Palestinians and Israelis who have been building at the grassroots movements to resist um, right-wing leadership uh, are many, and and how and and I think that that is a key component of what we're going to be wanting to do with this film. So, are you feeling more hopeful? Or- <laughs> I mean, I think I think I I um, I don't feel hopeful because the problem is small and that I think we are um, um, about to resolve it. I feel hopeful because I believe in uh, the human capacity to tackle these problems. And I have seen enough examples of extraordinary creativity and vision uh, in the face of horrific obstacles. So I'm hopeful because I know that we are capable of um, overcoming message of freedom, dignity, and equality, Julia Basha's work transcends borders and reminds all of us to think creatively and compassionately, even in the midst of conflict. To hear more about Julia's powerful films, visit www.justvision.org or find more links on the show notes for this episode. Thank you for listening to The Lowdown and this mini-series, The Future Is... This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley and the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.